Welcome back to the very last Supreme Myths podcast of 2023. Um, this is the third year of this podcast. It will go on past January. I am very excited to have someone I've admired really since I began uh, teaching law in 1991. Uh, Peter Shane is a professor emeritus at Ohio State, where he had a long and fantastic career. He is currently the uh, distinguished scholar in residence and adjunct professor at NYU in New York. Um, he is a uh, graduate of Harvard and Yale. He clerked on the Fifth Circuit. He is one of the leading experts in the United States on questions of presidential power, presidential everything, really, and administrative law. Um, he is the former dean of the University of Pittsburgh Law School, which I mentioned because, he doesn't know this, when Peter was dean at Pittsburgh, uh, my first Law Professor article was published in the University of Pittsburgh Law Review in 1993, I believe, which is when I think you were dean. Peter, welcome to Supreme Myths. Oh, it's delight delightful to be here. And that's a very kind introduction. Thank you. I'm really excited to talk to you. All right. So first of all, um, going way back in your in your life, um, how did you get interested in presidential power issues? Why why is that the space you decided to really become an expert in? So this is going to uh, reveal something about my age, <laughs> although you already used the word emeritus, so this won't be a big shock. Um, but Watergate summer, uh, I should say the summer of the urban hearings uh, was the summer between my junior and senior year of college. And so it, it really was being so thoroughly immersed in that experience. And I watched the hearings. So this, this is really TMI. Uh, I watched the hearings from a television uh, on the top floor of the Harvard Crimson building. So we're sur <laughs> I'm surrounded by all the other, uh, you know, nerdy Crimson editors. Uh, talking about these developments. So I was interested, you know, at that level. Uh, but then, so then I go to law school. And um, I went, to, I was at Yale Law School in the early mid-70s. And I went there, as many people did, in the hope of studying constitutional law. Uh, but Lou Pollock had just left. Alex Bickle was on his deathbed. I won't even mention who my, <laughs> my teacher was. It was dreadful. Um, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. It was who? I met Peter, I missed that. Who was your con law teacher? <laughs> uh, it, it was, and, and I'm sure he was a lovely person for other reasons, but it was Eugene Rostow. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, okay. It was, it was not a great class, yeah. but I had great classmates, I will say that. And I think we all determined to go out and learn constitutional law despite that course. <laughs> uh, and after clerking uh, on the Fifth Circuit, uh, I wanted to work for the Justice Department before I went into teaching, and I wound up at the Office of Legal Counsel. And I had, you know, not studied any kind of separation of powers course at Yale. I don't think there was certainly no course on the presidency at that time. This was still a time when I think uh, the structural part of constitutional law was treated as kind of the backwater, mm -hmm. uh, not where all the action was. Uh, but of course, it was a big part of OLC's business. And I realized immediately that there was no, because I uh, put it to another friend, there was no heart and what sort of article two. <laughs> and uh, so I'm sorry, Peter, 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 for the for the non lawyers listening, and we have some <laughs> um, heart and Wexler is, is like the, the, the most famous textbook. So so what Peter's saying is there wasn't a similar thing for presidential power. Go ahead. Right. There was nothing that explored executive power the way many texts explore judicial power. Yeah. So um, one of my 
office mates was a guy named Hal Bruff, Harold Bruff. And um, he was on leave from teaching at that time. He was at Arizona State. He had just come off an administrative law case book that he did with Ernie Gellhorn and Glenn Robinson. And so I said, Hal, you know, the world needs this book. And you know something about putting case books together. We should collaborate. And we did. And uh, and the rest is history. And I, when I started teaching in, in 1981, it was my first full-time gig at the University of Iowa. I actually thought I would be spending a lot of my time on education law, which is still a subject very dear to me, but one in which I haven't worked on very deeply because at about the same time I wrote something in which I was deeply invested in education law, I wrote a little piece on presidential power that just got a much bigger audience. And so, you know, one, one way or another, I just got, uh, drawn into that vortex. And it sounds like Watergate was a very formative experience for you. I, I was a teenager at the time, but even for me, and I, I was more interested in the Knicks and frankly girls than I was in politics at 14 years old, but they, whatever it was, but, but they, 15 years old, but they were riveting though. I, 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 and it definitely made me think, wow, doing something about government <laughs> sounds interesting because it, it yeah, was yeah. such a fascinating thing. All right. We're going to talk no, about I it. Should also say, could I just add one other point? Yeah, yeah, of course. And then when, I, when I went to the Office of Legal Counsel, it was also in this key post-Watergate moment for the Justice Department. Right. Um, Ford had appointed uh, Edward Beebe to be Attorney General, yep. Jimmy Carter appointed Griffin Bell, and both of them were determined to reprofessionalize the department and really resurrect the idea of fidelity to law in the wake of, you know, John Mitchell, Richard Kleindienst, uh, you know, that whole mess. And so I have to say, it led me into a, a moment in which it was possible to think quite idealistically about what good lawyering could mean in government. And it completely, I should say, Spoiled me. I often say that the judge for whom I clerked, the late Alvin Rubin, and the people to whom I reported at justice were such extraordinarily ethical uh, lawyers and so smart and so uh, nurturing of you know younger talent that I just assumed the world that that was the world. <laughs> it wasn't right. Well, since you mentioned Judge Rubin of the old Fifth Circuit, I, I do want to mention that um, I clerked for the Eleventh Circuit in nineteen. 86, a long time later, but I still, and I mentioned this in the podcast before, I still got to meet giants like Judge Wisdom um, and Judge Tuttle and Judge Frank Johnson, who were just absolute yeah. American heroes whose personal lives were, you know, were just torn apart because of their fidelity to ending segregation in the South. And um, when I met those men back in the early, mid 80s, they were all in the 90s, you know, 80s, but, but I met them all. Um, it was so inspiring. I mean, these are people who risked their families to do what was right. You know, um, their houses yep. were bombed. Um, and I can only imagine what it was like clerking on the Fifth Circuit when you did. It, it, it must have been a really fantastic time to do it, I would think. Yeah, it was wonderful. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we're going to get into all into issues people want to hear about, like the unitary executive theory and the major questions doctrine and Trump's immunity. We're going to get into all of that. But before we do, um, you wrote a long piece recently. Uh, in Washington Monthly about an issue that I've been very, very active on on, on Twitter and, and other places and, and my and my blog because I'm so upset about this. And I think you are too. You wrote about the Heritage Foundation 
and, and Heritage is a, is a DC public interest public nonprofit that has always been conservative with a little bit of a libertarian edge, but you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, wasn't crazy. wasn't It was just conservative. You know, I didn't agree with a lot of what they did, but I, I respected some of the people there, and it was just a you know a, a conservative organization. And then somewhere along the line, it's gone full Trump, and it is. When I say full Trumpian, I mean full Trumpian. And you write about, and this is terrifying me, how Heritage is helping. Trump and his people get ready for a possible administration that is going to change the nature of the presidency, unlike anything we've probably ever seen, is my guess, if they're successful. How afraid are you of this situation? I should also mention before you answer that Jenny Thomas has been at various times a paid employee at Heritage, and Clarence Thomas has given a, a huge number of speeches there where they raise money off the speech. They don't say they do, but they do. They raise money off the speeches. And to the best of my knowledge, he's never disclosed during those speeches that his wife was a paid employee of that organization. So how scared are you of this? Well, I'm quite scared, uh, honestly. I think uh, if, if, you want, if you want to say that you're giving credit where credit is due, one might credit uh, the right wing in this country for understanding the institutions that support liberal democracy. And I don't mean liberal like left-wing democracy. I mean the idea of liberal, a pluralist, inclusive democracy. And they have been extremely good at both attacking those institutions and building up alternate institutions. Uh, the Heritage Foundation is a good example. I think when it started, I I think the hope of the original trustees was to have a somewhat more activist version of something like the American Enterprise Institute. It would be a little more program, a little more programmatic in its thinking, yeah, but still kind of rigorous and uh, having kind of a quasi-academic respectability to it. And I think it was actually during the George W. Bush administration that they just started going over to being not kind of an independent, albeit conservative, a conservative, albeit independent think tank, but really being a kind of arm of the Republican Party. Yeah. And it's not really an arm of the MAGA Party. I mean, I, I think, you know, what the Republican Party that we grew up with, uh, at least that I grew up with, uh, th doesn't exist anymore. Um, it, it is the MAGA Party. And they are in it lock, stock, and barrel. They want to staff it up. They want to create the agenda for it. Trump, I think we can say pretty safely, could hardly care less about the details of any policy. <laughs> That's not what it's about. Right? Right. This has got nothing to do with that, you know, with, with his concerns. Yeah. So, but, but, you know, the people who pay the Heritage Foundation to, to do its thing. They care about the agenda, and they're perfectly willing to provide that agenda to Trump, whose attitude, I assume, is going to be something like, you know, as, as, long, as long as I have time at the end of the day to go after my enemies, you know, do whatever you want. Right, right. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm really nervous about this. And um, by the way, Ed Meese is also someone who is a heritage. I, I, I'm, 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 I, I just... It boggles my mind that people like Ed Meese and, frankly, my old good friend John Malcolm could possibly get in bed with Trump. I just don't understand it. 
I don't understand how this organization, why they're doing it. It feels like they want to destroy democracy. I don't know. Because they're talking about completely changing the civil service to basically be a, a pro-presidential, um, pro, not even presidential, a pro-Trump organization as opposed to an organization that's supposed to help the American people. Right. They really want to argue that, well, in their heart of hearts, they believe that the civil service, as we've relied on it, and, you know, we don't have to romanticize. I mean, the civil service is made up of human beings. Sure. Um, it's been a, you know, a vital kind of guardrail for the rule of law and democratic governance. And, um, you know, in their heart of hearts, they think it's unconstitutional. So making it all an instrument of presidential will uh, just seems natural to them. And I'm interested, I, I, you know, you, you have a more generous view, I think, of uh, our former Attorney General Meese than I do. Fair enough. Because when he was, when he was um, Attorney General in the second Reagan administration, I think he did more to politicize the Justice Department than, um, than William Friend Smith had ever done. So, you know, I, I think that Ted Olson, had, his head of OLC, had ever done. I mean, he, and he really wrote a kind of catechism on arguing about the Constitution from an originalist perspective, that he wanted to make kind of the mandatory script right. for every Justice Department lawyer. I mean, this is it's just uh, was unheard of. Yeah, Peter, I should tell you, I, I, I showed up at the Department of Justice, federal programs branch, uh, in late 1987 it was. Uh, Mies, Mies was still there for a minute. He, he, was, he left shortly afterwards. But I worked with OLC all the time during, that, during the George W. Bush administration on numerous high-profile cases. And, 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 me, and, and the former attorney general at that time, Ed Mies's uh, kind of agenda, you're right. It was, it was a serious problem at OLC and a serious problem at the Department of Justice. I will say the career people and even a few of the political people did a pretty good job during my years there of, of, of not adopting a hook, line, and sinker. My boss, um, Leslie Southwick, has been on has been a, a judge now, federal judge for a long time, and he was pretty good. Like he he was not a true believer in any sense of the word, and he still isn't. Anyway, all right, let's. We're, we're both worried about heritage. People should read your article in Washington Monthly about it. It's probably the best article I've seen on heritage. Um, and watch out for it, folks, because this 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 institution is no good, and it's coming for us. All right. Unitary executive theory. Um, you wrote an article. Well, I should say that, that your book, Democracy's Chief Executive, which came out last year, um, is a great book and, 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 and people should read it. It's available everywhere. Um, but you also wrote an article called, about originalism and the unitary executive theory. So I have, I have two questions. What is the unitary executive theory in, in your view? Um, and then you make a very strong argument, I think, that it's inconsistent with originalism, which is incredibly ironic given all the people in favor of it claim to be originalists. So um, go ahead. <laughs> well, so the crux of unitary executive theory is the idea that the president has been given by the Constitution the power to exercise and control all of the discretionary power vested in the executive branch whether it was given to the executive branch by the Constitution or by Congress. Anything discretionary that the executive branch can do, the president can control. Now, the implication of that, I think, for all adherents of unitary executive theory is that the president has to have complete removal power 
over all uh, officers, civil officers in the United States. Uh, the most extreme version of it, there are different flavors. Sure. That any delegation of power to the executive branch by Congress is really a delegation to the president. The president could do all of it, him or herself, if the president chose. So, uh, and, I, and I think, for example, Cypher Koch at Virginia, uh, with whom I disagree profoundly, but his work I really uh, have learned a lot from, uh, I think he actually takes this view. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's wrong. Uh, you're right that the Supreme Court uh, has uh, created a, a kind of an elaborate jurisprudence over the last 10 years concerning appointments and removals, all based on the kind of vindication of unitary executive theory, the right. idea that the, the president, the executive branch owes this kind of hierarchical accountability to the president in, a, in this quite singular way. And it purports, the majority purports to base it on an originalist understanding of the Constitution. It, it's very bad history. I mean, it is just very bad history. And, um, and, and so I just, and I can go into that in detail. I'll just give you one tell. Yeah. One tell. Sure. Which is in a case called um, a Sela Law, or maybe it's Sela Law. I don't think there's a consensus about that. Um, which held that it was unconstitutional to give the president uh, a limitation on his ability to remove the head of a single-headed executive agency, in that case, the uh, Consumer Finance Protection Bureau. Um, Chief Justice Roberts, writing from the majority, said that the framers created the president as the single most democratic official in the federal government. That is just mind-blowing nonsense. <laughs> he is clearly, the, as, as of 1789, the least democratic official. The House of Representatives is elected directly by the people. Right. The Senate is elected by the state legislatures. The state legislatures, at least, are directed by the people. And just be clear, in, in 1789, no longer. Go ahead. In 1789, yeah. yeah. Of course, you know, the Heritage Foundation would happily go back there. Yes. Um, the president was to be chosen by electors, to be chosen not by necessarily by the people, but by whomever the state legislatures decided should be electors. And indeed, until 1824, you know, a, a major issue in state legislative campaigns was, you know, whose electors are you going to support? So th there was no kind of democratic accountability. And the idea of the presidency at that time didn't last long was a much more managerial presidency. Um, not at all that the president would have, you know, what we would consider a kind of partisan agenda. Right. And this was, this was an idea that maybe you could entertain at the time if you're sitting in a room drafting a document with George Washington sitting in front of you. And you're thinking, he's, you know, he'll be president for the rest of his life, <laughs> four years at a time. Uh, and then, you know, other worthies, no less honorable, will replace him. Right. And by the early 90s, uh, that is 1790s, um, the sort of embryonic uh, political parties were created as caucuses in the House that became the Federalists and the uh, and the Democratic Republicans. Um, now, if you want to sort of take it on, it's kind of on its own terms. The way I 
like to talk to my students about this is, let's not ask the question what the framers imagined would be the removability of the Federal Communications Commission. <laughs> they, would have had, they would have had no idea what you're talking about. Right. Let's talk about criminal prosecutors because they knew about criminal prosecution. That, that was a thing, right? Yeah. So this would not have been, this would not be an anachronistic question. And I, again, I, you know, we could go into this in, in great detail or not, but there's a lot of evidence that in 1789, government lawyers who were doing prosecution, and by the way, private prosecution was still a, a big thing. Right. And of course, private prosecutors were not accountable to the chief executive. But prosecutors were thought to be as much judicial officers as executive officers. A tip-off being that the Attorney General of the United States was created in the Judiciary Act of 1789. Right. But if you look at the state constitutions, Attorneys general, are, when they're mentioned explicitly in the Constitution, are always mentioned in the same breath as judges and district attorneys. These are all judicial officials, quasi-judicial officials. Right. So the idea that this person who is now regarded by you know, Justice Scalia and his heirs as being the quintessential executive official who, whom Congress cannot at all insulate from at-will dismissal, I mean, that's just nonsensical history. So, so Peter, I want to, I, 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 I read your articles in the Pennsylvania Journal of Constitutional Law, I believe, I'm, and um, I, I, you've convinced me. I, I don't think we have to go into the details, and here's why. I had Jed professors, Jed Sugarman and Mike Ramsey on this podcast, and, and they are both kind of originalists, uh, Jed less than Mike, but they, they both think history is important, and they have completely different views on this issue. And I listened to them for an hour and five minutes or so, and I realized at the very end of it something I should have realized before. I, and they're both great people. I'm friends with both. I highly recommend both people's work. And, and, and I think Mike Ramsey is one of the most thoughtful originalists we have right now in the United States. But it occurred to me that their versions of history were so different that it was as if we were talking about two different countries. That it occurred to me, of course, this occurred to me years before this, but we should stop doing this. Like, okay, I think you, you make a compelling case. Also, you go, you go to the state, you know, kind of how the states did all this stuff. And you show in your article and your book, I think, that as an originalist matter, the president was not thought of this way. And I think you're 100% right. Um, but even if you weren't right, the country has changed so much and, and neither you nor I are originalists. Tell me why it's a bad idea. Tell, I'll tell the audience what, let's assume that, that we're, gonna, we're gonna say, okay, history's unclear or if anything, we don't care about it. It's a new country, it's a new world. Um, why is it bad? Why is the unitary executive theory, why, why does it have bad policy consequences? Or, or maybe it doesn't. I don't know. I'm asking. Well, it, it's a, again, we have, one can get into this from, you know, many a side door, front sure. door, back door. Um, but I would say two things. It's sort of the high level abstractions. One is that adopting this as a view of what the president is entitled to creates what I called in my writing, a psychology of entitlement within the executive branch that easily paves the way for an authoritarian presidency. When Trump famously said, there's this thing called Article 2 that allows me to do whatever I want, he was paraphrasing with only, I think, slight excess what Bill Barr and other lawyers in the executive branch were undoubtedly telling him that Article 2 meant. Right. So... So there's that. 
Now, the second thing is it it represents a view. Well, let's say two things. Thing number one: when the presidency was created in 1789, you had this. You know, a managerial expectation for what the president would do. The president was not going to be a, the political leader uh, in the way you know we would now have the presidency being the, the, the mobilizer of political opinion. Right. Um, he's going to be a manager, and so you know one could imagine. And you're talking about a government in its entirety. Um, no, at least on the civilian side. And of course, there wasn't a standing army, but so on the civilian side, no bigger than the smallest cabinet department today. So you can kind of imagine maybe the president getting to know <laughs> most everybody. Sure. <laughs> so, you know, if you're around long enough. Right. But now we're at a completely different stage of, you know, institutional development where the president does occupy this very precarious position where he is simultaneously, and now I'm borrowing straight from Steve Skaronik, who's written about this, where the president is simultaneously almost a kind of plebiscitarian leader of political mobilization, where to succeed as president, he has to kind of be a disruptive mobilizing force. And you have this vast bureaucracy that is supposed to, again, be uh, a kind of guardrail in the sense that it allows multiple voices to be heard. It allows multiple perspectives to be heard. It allows statutes that were written in earlier years in responsive to other political majorities to be implemented with attention to what their values were and their expectations were. And, and, and that idea of democracy, of being this kind of multivocal opportunity for as many people as possible to have their interests taken seriously and to have meaningful voice in the process, that is the theory behind having the kind of bureaucracy we have and a kind of presidency that was pretty successful as a model, I would say between World War II and 1980. Obviously there were glitches, um, yeah. but, um, <laughs> but you know, it, it was a pretty successful model. But now I think um, it has just become the, the idea that the bureaucracy, which is really a venue for democratic contestation, and if that's not too highfalutin a word, a democratic dialogue and uh, in, in, uh, input, deliberation, that this thing is now just to become an instrument of the president's will, uh, is extremely dangerous. And, the, and you know, the, there are layers upon layers of this. The, the defenders of the idea that the president is kind of uniquely the national representative. Right. I suppose to the outside world of necessity, that may be true, but there's no evidence that the president's agendas are any less particularistic or less parochial than uh, members of Congress. And indeed, the, the way in which our elections are structured, which rewards kind of base politics, I mean, <laughs> rewarding your base, maybe maybe mean base both ways. Right. Um, but rewarding this sort of cultivating kind of your faction uh, means that the president presidents don't need to search for the median voter. They don't need to bring people together. They they need only 
uh, in the current media environment to keep kind of feeding the propaganda machine and uh, and using the machinery of government either properly or in Trump's case uh, to do whatever he thinks he can get away with. Um, that, that was, that was, that was a, a wonderfully articulate description. Um, when I was at DOJ, um, I just, I just, for some reason, got involved in a lot of political cases. So I, I was, I was, I went upstairs a lot, meaning to the attorney general suite or the deputy. I was a lowly trial lawyer, but for some reason, I got involved in Iran Contra and I got involved in a lot of other things, Lockerbie and a bunch of other things. Um, what I noticed, though, at the time, and what I was impressed with at the time, even in the George, you know, even in that in the George W. Bush administration, George H. W. Bush administration, was there was still a feeling that we have to get along. There was still a feeling, um, I don't know if Reagan's OLC was like this, but we, um, for, I'll give you one quick example of this that I don't think would happen today. And then I've talked, I th- I, Chris Walker, your, your former colleague, on my, on my podcast last week, I think I was t- telling Chris this, that um, there came a point in time when the, Nas- when the Congress said the National Endowment for the Arts could no longer fund obscene speech. It was a stupid little statute that Strom Thurmond and Jesse Helms had got passed. Um, and they said executive branch define obscenity for purposes of this law. So I was called to, I was told to get my jacket and tie and go upstairs. When I got there, it was the deputy attorney general um, and, and a guy from OLC named Michael Paulson, who is now a law professor and was and, and a very famous, prominent conservative law professor. And, and what they did was, Peter, they asked both of us to go into a room and define obscenity for purposes of the National Endowment for the Arts. But, but, they specifically said, a guy named George Twilliger, who is now Trump's lawyer, um, but was the deputy attorney general at the time, specifically said, we're picking you guys for two reasons. One, you both have said you might want to teach someday, and this sounds kind of academic. But more importantly, Michael, we know your politics. Eric, we know your politics. And it's a good idea to get different views in the room. It's a good idea to get different views in the room. Would that ever happen in the Trump administration? No. I don't, I'm, I'm hoping it happens in the Biden administration, but I'm not even sure that it does. Um, and that's a sad thing, right? I mean, it's, it's good to have thoughtful, reasonable people at the Department of Justice hashing out what policies they should favor or not, as opposed to it being a partisan arm of the government in power. I, yes, ditto. Okay. I agree. Okay. Amen. Okay. Okay. Um, so, um, I, I, so what's, we're taping this uh, on Wednesday of this week, and um, we just heard the Supreme Court um, might uh, actually take Trump's immunity issues and resolve them faster on, 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 and bypass the Court of Appeals. They haven't decided that yet, but they've decided to decide that. <laughs> that got, the media got that all wrong. The media said they were going to decide it quickly. All they decided to do was decide whether to decide it quickly. But leaving that aside, I want to talk to you about immunity, okay? And let's start at the beginning on this. Let's start at the beginning on this. So, uh, or not the beginning, excuse me, the middle. The Supreme Court has held uh, in the Fitzgerald case that presidents are immune forever from civil lawsuits for actions taken at the outer perimeter of their authorities. Do you agree with that legal rule? I, so I, I want to say it's okay. Okay. <laughs> um, this bringing up, maybe all this Justice Department talk is bringing out um, Sorry. inner bureaucrat. And, and, you know, you have, well, do you agree or disagree? And you're supposed to say, well, I have no problem with that. So <laughs> later on, 
you, you, if you're ever quoted as a Greek, say, I never said that. I agree. That's eh, no problem with that. Right. Um, right. So I think that, you know, I, I think that that's an acceptable balance uh, okay. between the interests of the presidency and, um, you know, what may be the very serious interests of individuals who are affected by uh, tortious conduct um, by a president while in office. Okay. And, I, and I would just say, uh, you know, I, I think the court recognized that it was balancing, uh, which is always a kind of nervous place to be. I do think that one of the concerns, and I think this is probably the most legitimate concern, and I'm going to now I'm going to talk myself into affirmatively agreeing with the majority, <laughs> is that um, it, as it is, there's litigation, of course. Uh, and we see this with regard to Trump over what's what are the outer perimeters of his authority. Right. They did it on a more function by function basis. Which that's, was, that's what just that's that's what Justice White said in dissent in that case. Right. But yes, he was arguing for a, a you know we should do this depending on what function is being right. uh, at stake here. I think the proliferation of possible litigation. Uh, trying to parse everything that presidents do, uh, I think would have been much greater. And I'm not sure, uh, you know, ultimately worthwhile. Well, I, so yeah, yeah, I think okay. I think that was okay. I, I think it's funny because I I think we agree on a lot. Um, I think it's okay. I'm willing to live with it. Something tells me there could be a way of distinguishing between. So I, I believe the facts of that case were more or less that the president said, "Fire that whistleblower." I don't care. Pardon my language. Pardon my language. Nixon said, I think he's a son of a bitch. We had this on tape. Fire the guy. In bad faith. Intentional bad faith. Right. Maybe we could have drawn a distinction between intentional targeting of, of people in bad faith and your run-of-the-mill torts. I, I'm not sure we could have done that. But overall, I tend to agree with you. I think any other rule would possibly be a potential um, problem. My students over the last 30 years of discussing this are pretty much split down the middle on this. Some thinks it puts the president above the law. Some suggest just, just let him be immune while he's in office. And then when he gets out, he has to deal with it like any other person. Um, and then other students think, no, having this, this sword over his head or her head someday, hopefully, um, will be just too dramatic. So I think, I, think, I think it's a hard question. Let's move on. Clinton versus Jones. Um, so uh, for the non-lawyers in the room, uh, Bill Clinton was accused of doing a very, very terrible sexually harassing thing while he was governor of Arkansas, and he was sued while he was president for acts that took place before he became president. He argued in court not that he was immune for all time for this. He said in most cases, absent exceptional need, the president should have to defend such civil suits after he leaves office, and the court disagreed and said no. You have to um, defend this while you're in office because these were obviously not presidential acts. These are acts before you became president. And just one more thing about it, uh, apparently at a, a Scalia whispered to somebody at the time, uh, Clinton's lawyer is saying he's, the president's so busy, but he's playing golf every day. It's a very snarky thing for Scalia to do. I believe that he, that was picked up by, by people in the audience. Anyway, um, what is your view on Clinton versus Jones? Because my students think it's wrong. My students think they should have waited in most cases, after the president leaves office. So I actually think this is even harder in yeah. a way than uh, the Fitzgerald case. Yeah. Um, I think in principle, it is hard to 
criticize the majority's reasoning. I think what the majority had not anticipated, well, I think what the majority had not anticipated was the way in which civil litigation involving the president could be wrapped up in a sort of broader gauge political campaign funded by third parties to destabilize right. a, a presidential administration. Which is what happened. <laughs> Which is what happened. Having said that, I still think the idea that um, presidents are you know, accountable to law is critically foundational. Right. And I do think, you know, if, if the president uh, commits vehicular homicide while president, um, or even, you know, just a negligent something, you know, just an ordinary crime. Uh, well, I shouldn't, so crime is going to get it just into something else. But he, he does something uh, tortious that's outside the perimeter of his duties. Right. Uh, or, or maybe not even in a presidential capacity. He just, um, he accidentally blows up his neighbor's house. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, with the fire, you know, dangerous fireworks display. Whatever it is. It's not clear that um, the burdens on the president in dealing with that would ordinarily be uh, so great as to justify making the injured party uh, wait till the end of the president's administration. Right. And, and I would say one of the interesting things is, you know, however bad the whole uh, Paula Jones litigation and its connection with the Ken Starr investigation of Clinton and all, and all of that, however badly that turned out in terms of uh, the Clinton administration, it actually did not, you know, maybe surprisingly, it didn't unleash uh, this history of president after president being targeted by, you know, lawsuit after lawsuit right. uh, for civil liability. So, right. you know, in retrospect, maybe this was the right result, even though uh, it had some un unfortunate impacts at the time. So I think, I think we both agree that both of those cases, Fitzgerald and Clinton, are just really hard cases. And, and, and I, you know, I, 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 I would probably reverse them. <laughs> I mean, I, I'd probably go the other direction in both cases, maybe. But I think reasonable people can disagree on it. Um, you said it, the majority opinion, I just want to make clear, that it was a unanimous decision with Justice, right, it was unanimous with Justice Breyer, I think, writing separately to say there are some constitutional concerns here. Uh, not your scheduling concerns. All right. So that's the that's the background. <laughs> now, now we get to current events. Um, so I think Donald Trump is arguing that I, I, I can't even get this out of my mouth. It's so ridiculous. But I think Donald Trump is arguing that presidents are immune from criminal prosecution forever <laughs> for anything they do while they're in office. That is, again, at the outer perimeter of their responsibilities. We define to be pretty much everything. Um, I think that's insane. I'm assuming you think that's insane as well. I think it's insane and very dangerous. Yeah. And um, and I would also say, and I'm just trying to remember, there is you know one of his big in one of his big opinions, John Marshall started out. I think it was a Marshall opinion, and he says something like, you know, this is uh, a vastly important decision, which fortunately. Uh, it's not as difficult to answer. That's Marbury. That's like, Marbury. That, that, that's in Marbury where, where he starts talking about judicial review. He says this question is fascinating, ah, but, but not but not hard. That's what he says. Right. Fascinating, but not hard. Yeah. It's just, this is fascinating, but God help us if it's hard. Right. Uh, right. The hard, I mean, I think there is a hard question. Whether presidents can be prosecuted for crime while in office. Sure. 
Sure. The OLC opinion on that is not the most compelling argument I've ever seen, but you know, it's not a silly argument. Right. Uh, there's obviously, you know, the stakes are huge um, and it's a comprehensible analysis. The idea that once you leave the presidency, that somehow your crimes would be off the table is, is just, number one, it's one's anti, completely antithetical to the, to the ideal of the rule of law. Yeah. It is not supported by a word in the Constitution. It is not supported by anything in American history. In fact, it, it would have come as a big surprise to both Gerald Ford and Richard Nixon that the pardon was an utterly gratuitous act because Nixon couldn't have been prosecuted right. anyway. That's a great point, Peter. Yeah. That's a great point. Right. Yeah, this is crazy. Or, you know, Nixon is, excuse me, Nixon Trump. I'm thinking of all of White Cone's proteges at once. Um, the Trump also makes the argument that, um, you know, he, he'd have to be impeached and convicted before he could be prosecuted. And since he was, you know, not convicted, uh, that, that somehow lets him off. And again, that's it's worth talking about why the impeachment process and the criminal process are entirely separate. But again, I want to resurrect here the ghost of Spiro Agnew, who right. was, of course, prosecuted. although let's not resurrect Spiro Agnew literally because that would be a bad thing. <laughs> I, I did figure it. Um, <laughs> but again, you know, nobody said, "Hey, you know, we have to." Uh, but, well, Robert Bork, as Solicitor General, said it was even okay to prosecute him while he was in office. Right. Uh, right. But the fact that there'd been no impeachment. So uh, as, as, as a predictive, Peter, as a predictive matter, even, I mean, there's no way this Supreme Court is going to say the president is immune from ever for criminal liability, right? I mean, even this court's not going to do that, right? Um, I, I have to believe that because I could not get up in the morning and teach constitutional law. I thought I'd think different. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I yes, I, I think that this is got to be true. I, what I, what may be more worrisome is that, and again, you know, we'd have to parse the individual statutes that Trump is accused of sure. violating. But Bill Barr, when he was auditioning to be Jeff Sessions' replacement, wrote a memo in which he made the argument that presidents could not obstruct justice because you can't prove corruption without uh, looking into the state of mind of someone and that this would somehow be an impermissible thing to do with regard to how the president performs an official act. Um, and so as long as if the president, you know, is firing the head of the FBI, which is he's allowed to do, the president is basically doing anything that if he's not corrupt, he's allowed to do it. Um, the corrupt motive for it can't be the basis for criminal prosecution. Uh, I, again, I think that's nonsense. Um, it's refuted in the Mueller report. But um, I, I do worry about the parsing of statutes in a way that would try to shoehorn uh, some kind of uh, exoneration for Trump. Yeah, I, I want to mention that because um, you you've now mentioned Bill Barr several times. Um, I mentioned earlier I'd worked on Iran-Contra um, when I was at DOJ. Uh, this has nothing to do with my work at DOJ, and I'm not revealing any secrets. Um, if, you, if one reads the Iran-Contra report done by Lawrence Walsh, a Republican, one will read more or less the sentence that says, this is the highest cover-up of executive 
transgressions in American history. That's written by a Republican about Republicans. Uh, and Bill Barr was a big part of convincing George Bush not just to pardon um, uh, Weinberger, but to pardon basically everybody. Um, and and, and it, it, I think that's one of the most upsetting events in American political history that I know about. Lawrence Walsh agreed with that. Um, so whatever Bill Barr says, you know, I think we can just say he's doing what's best for Bill Barr. <laughs> and that's about the extent, that's about the extent of his reach. Oh. Um, so I, I want to ask you one more thing about, about this immunity question. Um, sure. Is that, so are we saying that the, the president's in office, he leaves office, he is indicted either in state or federal court or both for violating either state or federal laws or both does in a, to the extent federal official officials or 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 if he was not the president he would have qualified immunity you'd have to show he acted in bad faith i think um of some kind in a civil case in a criminal case i'm assuming the burden is exactly the same and i'm assuming that's true for the president as well but i'm not 100 percent sure would there be any thoughts of using a different standard for a, a for what a president does than what a bank robber does or a, or a white collar criminal does or a murderer does is, is there a different way of looking at it or is this no you're a criminal defendant we're going to treat the same as everybody else i think that's the answer okay i, think, I don't think there's a separate standard and i also maybe i didn't correctly understand you but i i don't think that there is a, a qualified immunity for um government officials when charged with crimes. No, no I, I meant with civil cases. I meant in civil cases. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, right. So, no, I, I think if you're a government official and you've committed a crime, you're treated like any other criminal. And okay. um, I do think that unlike, uh, well, the argument that was made in Fitzgerald is because presidents are required to be, you know, vigorous, courageous, decision makers facing hard challenges at the top of the executive branch, we don't want them second guessing too much about kind of the blurry lines of, you know, what's negligent and what right. isn't. Um, I have a hard time thinking that uh, if, if presidents are spending a lot of time worrying about whether what they're doing is a crime or not. Right. Um, I think I want them to spend that time. Yes. Great point. Yes. <laughs> yes. On the right side of the line. Yes. Um, yes. I, I don't think I don't think any president is realistically going to be uh, disabled in the faithful execution of the laws by the threat that uh, if he commits crimes, he could be prosecuted. He or she could be prosecuted. Right. OK. Well said. Well said. Um, I want to move on to an issue that I've taken a fairly controversial public stance on and I'm getting heat from my friends about, um, and that's Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. So um, for those who aren't totally familiar with this issue, of course, most people are. The 14th Amendment says that if you took an oath to obey the Constitution or you took an oath, uh, if you're basically an office holder, state or federal government, and you then engage in an insurrection or a rebellion, you can't hold office again. Um, and there are lawsuits going on in 10 different courts right now. People have heard about the Minnesota suit and the Colorado suit. Um, I went out to Stanford a few weeks ago to talk to Michael McConnell and Will Bode about this. Um, my view on this is we can't disqualify as odious and as horrible as Trump is, the front runner of the one of the two major political parties and a former president from running again disenfranchising 70 million Americans, unless we are sure about everything. 
And when I say everything, I mean sure on the law, sure on the facts. I think there are a couple legal issues here that are unclear. Not the one that the court used about him not being an officer. He's obviously an officer. Um, and I think there are many factual questions that are unclear about whether he actually engaged in a rebellion. So my view, and plus I think to, uh, politically it's a horrific mistake. Um, I think Democrats should come out strong and say, we're going to beat him fair and square. We don't have to use that. Um, he's terrible for our country. We're not going to. Um, uh, and, and then um, I guess one more, la my last part of my argument is I would hate to give this weapon to the Republicans. Now, they may use it anyway, but I doubt it. If the Democrats would have unilaterally disarm on it, I don't think they would use it unless it was absolutely clear. Am I nuts? Do you think I'm crazy? Because all my liberal friends think I'm crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, far be it for me to give a clinical diagnosis. Fair enough. You know, at most I could say, well, this is evidence in the portfolio. <laughs> um, I, I guess uh, what I think is this. First of all, you know, reading the, the Colorado District Court opinion, um, was quite sobering. And what's interesting is uh, Trump, in a sense, lost on what I thought would be the much harder issue uh, the plaintiffs to prevail on, which was the insurrection. Issue. Right. I mean, right. It's like a 60-page opinion, 65 pages are devoted to showing why, you know, this was an insurrection, why yeah. he committed an insurrection against the Constitution. Right. Um, and then there's like three pages on, but he's not an officer. Right. I do think, to me, the the um, the hard thing. I, I think this has to be resolved by the Supreme Court. Sure. I, I don't. I think it would be a disaster uh, for the court to dodge this if, you know, once any court, any state court, uh, rules against Trump, I, I think it would have to go to the Supreme Court. Sure. And, um, you know. And I would sort of feel for them because on one hand, I do think the Bode Paulson article uh, about the history of Section 3 is, is quite persuasive. Uh, I don't find the factual questions of that insurrection, I think, as close as you do. I do think it would be, and, and I should say, you know, people have said, uh, and I'm not saying, I don't know if this is your position, that, you know, if, if, if this happens, uh, there'll be violence. If Trump loses in November of 2024, there's going to be violence. Right. Also. Right. Um, now, so, but that part of it, you know, by the way, I've been accused, Peter, of, of that being my main argument. It's not. It's like a footnote of the argument. I mean, I'm a little worried about it, but you're right. There's going to be violence anyway, so it doesn't matter. But, but I think, you know, what is um, profoundly difficult about this is because it really does pit the idea of popular sovereignty, which I think is, which I take it as the core of your argument. Yes. Against, you know, the idea of a written constitution. And here, you know, there are, there are lots of things, almost everything interesting about the constitution requires, you know, interpretation that leads to a great deal of uncertainty. Right. This, this is, again, not that hard in terms of what it means or that it's self-executed. Um, so I, I guess I, I think we sort of have to let this play out. Uh, and I honestly 
don't quite know what the Supreme Court, I mean, the Supreme Court can pull anything out of its hat. They, you know, they can say, you know, um, yes, this is self-executing, blah, 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 but these decisions shouldn't be made within six months of the election. Right. I mean, so I, I, would, I would rather they find a, an artful dodge than try to sort of mangle what uh, sure. the 14th Amendment means. So, so that's my legal question. Now I have a political partisan question. <laughs> Um, well, it's not. It's actually not a partisan because I, I don't. I don't view this as a partisan question. I think if Donald, I think you think this too. If Donald Trump is president again, our country may well be over. He's an existential threat to the very existence of the United States of America as we know it. So, to me, the single most important thing is making sure he's not president again, and then we can talk about everything else. And um, my view is. The Democrats trying to disqualify him at the Supreme Court level will, will be a disaster because the court won't go for it. They're not, I, I don't think there's any chance the Supreme Court disqualifies Donald Trump. I, don't, I think you're right. I think they'll, they won't reach the merits. They'll find some way to avoid you know, doing something. But, but I don't think they're going to disqualify him. And I think as just, as, as just a political partisan matter, the Democrats in Congress— uh, so um, Jamie Raskin, who's leading the charge about Section 3 in Congress, Jamie and I are friends. I sat in his office, actually, for a semester. I mentioned this before on this podcast. Uh, he got sick in the, in the uh, early 2000s, and I actually visited to take this place for a while. Um, I want to convince Jamie to do exactly the opposite. Think how polit- – would wouldn't it be politically powerful for the Democrats, leaders, for, for, for Schumer and, and the leaders of the House, to, to, to have a national conference, press conference, say, we're introducing a bill – to relieve Donald Trump of any possible disqualification, which they can do. That's not judicially reviewable. Right. What? I think that would be an institutional disaster. Oh, really? Well, would, okay, let me finish my argument, and then you, and you tell me why I'm wrong. And then, yeah. and then we, okay. Uh, the American people like John Wayne. The American people like Ronald Reagan. The American people like strong leaders. I think if the Democrats come out and say, um, we think he engaged in insurrection, we think he did a terrible thing, and we think he might even be plausibly disqualified under Section 3, we're not going to take this issue away from the American people, and we are confident we can beat him, we are confident we have the faith of the American people, and we're going to let the American people decide this question, not five of nine Supreme Court justices. I think that's a political winner. I think people love that kind of thing. I think if they do it strongly and with bravado and the way Ronald Reagan would do it or the way John Wayne would do it, I think that comes off incredibly well to suburban housewives in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, which are the only voters that matter anyway, pretty much, for the next election. So, okay, now tell me why I'm nuts and crazy and wrong. <laughs> I think it would split the, I think it would do to the Democrats uh, pretty much what the Nixon pardon uh, did to the Republicans. I think it would absolutely uh, drive the party in half. Um, I, I think I think it has to be allowed to play out. And I, okay. and I think the idea that um, we can script public understanding of an event uh, is just, uh, you know, look, I'm, the, I'm always the family optimist. No, <laughs> nobody, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> my epitaph would be he naively thought he wouldn't wind up here. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I, I get it. But, but I, I just think um, it's it, it is not political reality. To uh, that, that it's to funny you say that, that you're known as your family optimist because my nickname in various circles is Doctor Doom and Gloom. So maybe that's why we're I'm not a doctor, but that's why maybe we're on the opposite sides of this of this question because I'm approaching it very yeah. pessimistically, and maybe you're approaching it a little more optimistically. Mm -hmm. Peter, if you last question, we're about done. Um, if you could make one change 
to how the American, this is a hard question, I'm sorry, I did not tell you I was going to ask you this, but it occurs to me because you're so knowledgeable about the president and the history of the presidency, which I don't, I don't, I'm not a big believer in history being important for legal issues, but it is important to understand our country and our people. If you can make one change what, to, to how we view the president or what the president is empowered to do to improve our country once Trump has come and gone, hopefully, what would you do? Do I get two things? Yes, please. You get 10 things if you want, if you can say them all in about five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, thing number one is uh, I, I believe in Supreme Court reform. I, I think that, uh, you know, the current, I, I think it's very dangerous to be stuck with the current membership of the court for the next 20 to 30 years. Yeah. Um, so I would like to do something about that. But with regard to the presidency, and maybe this is from hanging around, you know, Rick Pildes in the halls of NYU, <laughs> probably the, the single most helpful thing would be to get to change the way presidents are selected. And yeah. I would do two things. Number one, I would want to get rid of um, closed primaries as a way of uh, choosing presidential candidates. And I would want every state, and this would not have to be done, and, and what I'm about to say does not require a constitutional amendment at all. I think every state should adopt a law that would grant the state's electors to the winners of a state majority vote. Well, there's about 30, haven't over 30 states done that already? Um, there has to be a majority. Yeah, well, I, 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 thought there, I thought there were like a bunch of states who have said, we will recognize the, the popular winner as the winner of the electoral votes from our state. I thought like over 30 states have already done that. Oh, you said popular winner. Yeah. I've said majority, that there has to be 50% plus one support before we give the electors away. It can be done through ranked choice voting. It can oh, be done I see. through a runoff. Yeah. But I think we need to eliminate the prospect of, you know, independent and third party spoilers in what inevitably is going to be a two major party race. Yeah. Um, the, the combination of primaries and, you know, this the mischief that can be done by, you know, people who are, are not serious presidential candidates um, is what sets the ground for, you know, somebody like Trump uh, to thrive. And, you know, I, I, I'd love to think that, you know, the prospect of a uh, of a demagogue, uh, of an incompetent, mendacious demagogue uh, belongs only to one party, but there's no necessary reason to believe that. And I think if we really do want to preserve the idea of democracy's chief executive, as as the book is called yes. in my podcast as well. Yes, um, I was about to ask you about that, but go ahead. <laughs> if that's the objective, um, then I do think we need to uh, think about the way we wind up choosing people to be president. All right. Um, Peter, um, I do want to go ahead and tell tell people for just a quick 30 seconds uh, what your new podcast is. So the new podcast um, is called Democracy's Chief Executive, the podcast. And it was, you know, I, I think I probably share uh, an ambition that you had also, which is taking these things that are fascinating to us, these issues, uh, and trying to make them accessible 
uh, exciting for yes. a, a non-expert audience. And I and I want to say I used to say a non-lawyer audience, but you know I I know a lot of lawyers that use the same dog park where I walk my dog in the morning. <laughs> and if if they're not constitutional lawyers, they you know this is as alien to them yes. as it is to 100%. you know my friends who are yeah. you know, doctors and other things. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted basically to explore really the big question that you just asked, which or is implied, which is, is the presidency as it's now constituted good for American democracy? And, and, and if not, you know, what do we need to understand about it? So unlike you, uh, I've tried to do uh, kind of seasons in advance that right. planned around a theme much shorter. I mean, you, you, I think you said you're at 110 episodes. Yes. Uh, we just rolled out uh, what will be our 14th when episode seven of the second season. Right. The first season, let me put that near quotes, was on the question, how does law affect the exercise of presidential power? Right. This season is entirely about presidential elections mm -hmm. uh, and including, you know, candidate selection. Right. The role of political polling, the electoral college you know, and all of that stuff. Uh, awesome. Well, um, while we're talking about podcasts, just hang tight for one second before I thank you. Um, I just want to say, um, by the way, people should read your book, Democracy's Chief Executive, and listen to this podcast. I want to tell my audience that I started this in COVID because I was bored, um, and Jack Balkin and I were having a fight on Twitter, and we decided to take it public, not, not a fight, but a dispute, and we took it to, to this podcast, and this is episode, your episode 110, um, and I, uh, I get to see the numbers, and I'm very, very thankful that I've been able to do this over three years with um, a reasonable amount of people um, listening. And um, I'm, I just want to tell everybody who listens to this podcast how, how much I appreciate that. And I, and I hope to keep doing this for a while. Uh, I've told a lot of people it feels self-indulgent to me, uh, but then other people tell me that it's helpful to them to think about these hard issues. Um, and uh, so I want to take this last podcast of 2023 to thank my audience for being there um, and um, for giving me support for doing this. And I also want to thank my technical expert, Bobby, without whom uh, this would never happen and I could never have done this. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for coming on. Great luck with you. Uh, I think your podcast is, is, is excellent. And I think if people are interested in presidential issues, they should listen to it. In any event, they should follow you wherever you go, because I think you are, uh, in my view, one of the most prominent uh, experts on these issues in the United States. And I really appreciate you coming on. Well, Eric, that's very generous. And I've, you know, I've learned so much from your written work. I, I love the book, Originalism is Faith. Oh, thank you. It's learned a lot in my own work. And uh, it's, it's really a great pleasure to end the year by being with you. Ditto. Thank you.